13. We're just going to look at a few verses beginning at uh, verse 4. I preached through this entire chapter a few weeks back in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians and uh, reminded us that this great um, passage on the importance of love uh, falls in the midst of Paul's discussion with them about how they're using their spiritual gifts. They were uh, they put a lot of emphasis on these particular gifts, and the way they were practicing their gifts was actually leading to division in the church. And so uh, Paul is reorienting them to the priority of love within the church. And we said, uh, when we looked at that passage, you could spend quite a bit more time on it because it's uh, so profound in terms of what it says about love. And so here I'm just looking at verses 4 uh, to the first part of verse 8. Uh, for this description of love, and uh, then trying to apply this to what we experience at our uh, presbytery meeting uh, just in the last few days. So let's give attention now. This is God's word, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. And that's where we'll end our reading. Uh, There is an outline at the back of the sanctuary, if you'd like to use that to follow along for this message, and then there's also a handout in a various multicolored paper uh, that will help us as we talk about uh, the, the, uh, the presbytery meeting in just a few moments. Well, you can ask uh, Elder DeYoung for the details, but let's just say there were a few fireworks, excuse me, uh, when he presented the Emanuel Congregation's report. Uh, acting as the interim moderator for um, that congregation. And let me say that Ken received a standing ovation. I've never seen that at the Presbytery meeting from the, Laf- the West Lafayette congregation as an expression of their gratitude for his sacrificial labors on their behalf. And it was quite moving. Now, during Ken's report, he made a statement to the effect that the church is not the presbytery. The church is the people of God in their congregations. The presbytery exists to help the church, to serve the church, but it's not the other way around. The congregations don't exist so that we have a presbytery. That's not the way it works. And after he made this comment, one of the brothers came up and was very concerned if Ken was uh, maybe not sufficiently committed to the concept of Presbyterian church government, that statement. Now, in this brother's defense, he's coming out of a congregational uh, kind of church government, so he's a, he's a little sensitive to those things. And, and so it was a reminder Uh, that the system of government, while incredibly important, isn't the most important thing. And I think it's really easy for us to think that the structures themselves 
can sort of solve our problems or ensure that we get a good outcome. And of course, having the right structure is really important. But the structure itself cannot produce what only the grace of God working through love can produce. So we're, we're Presbyterians. I believe in the Presbyterian system of church government. The idea is that local congregations elect their own leaders. Leaders come up organically from the congregations. And then the churches in, that are close by each other, they oversee each other's work. There's accountability. And so there isn't just this sort of like each congregation is an island unto itself. So I think the Presbyterian system is biblical. The congregational system vests all authority in the local congregation. And uh, there are certain dangers when that happens because if the leadership in that one church decides we're going to go in another direction, there's really no recourse for the people in the congregation. There's not oversight. So that's congregationalism. The other option, and and congregationalism, by the way, is probably the most common form of church government in, in, in our country today. The other form is sort of what's called an Episcopal system, where you have authority vested in individuals. So you have bishops and archbishops, and so men with authority make decisions. And there's dangers in that as well, uh, because you're you're vesting a lot of power in one individual. One of the, the principles of Presbyterian church government is what's called rule by plurality of elders. You can't even have a church unless you have multiple elders. There's no such thing as one man rule in the Presbyterian system. So I believe in Presbyterianism. I think it's biblical, and there are many advantages to it. But I also confess that Presbyterianism itself cannot do anything. The power, and this passage reminds us of that very clearly, is in God's love working through his people. And to paraphrase uh, what Paul goes on to say in this passage, uh, Presbyterianism will fail at times, but God's love will never fail. And that's where our hope has to be. And so the main point as we look at this this evening, a system of church government is only as effective as its practitioners, but Jesus' love never fails. And children, if you're going to draw a picture, you might just draw a picture of one of your friends in the church or uh, multiple friends of, of yours in the church and uh, maybe something about what you like about him or her. Well, the first thing I want us to notice here is that a system of church government is only as effective as its practitioners. Now, remember, the church in Corinth is a gifted, it's a real church. These are real believers, and it's gifted. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7, they lack no gift. Their problem is, if they're not exercising their gifts in a loving way, the gifts become worthless. And he makes that point in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter. And I would say the same thing is true for our system of government. What, what do we do at these presbytery meetings? Well, we get together and we oversee the work of all the different congregations. So there are reports of the congregations and we look at each other's minute books to see what's going on. And we also serve as a court of appeal. If there's a conflict within a congregation that can't get resolved there, the presbytery acts as a court of appeal. And sometimes we have to adjudicate disputes. 
One of our main functions is to oversee the training of ministers. So that happens at the presbytery level. So a lot of our work is giving exams and, and, uh, and, and guiding men through the process of training. And all of that is extremely important. But you understand that that system alone doesn't ensure good outcomes. I grew up in a Presbyterian church, which 50 years ago was already no longer preaching the gospel. And it's gotten a lot worse since then. And they have all the same structures we do. They do all those things I just mentioned, just like we do. And they don't believe a word of the Bible. So the system itself is not the answer. It's it's not a knock. What I'm saying is not a knock on Presbyterianism. It just points out a truism, and that is that any system which is run by human beings who are fallible is going to have its limits. Human beings who are faithful sometimes can thrive in a less than ideal system. They certainly do better in a good system, but the best system in the world cannot cause people who do not love God and do not love each other and are not committed to God's word to be committed to God's word or to love God or to love each other in the right ways. And it's fascinating because even in our own denomination, there have been ups and downs. There are times in our denomination's past when we have been very rigid, almost bordering on legalistic. I'm not inviting you to do this, but I I studied our minute books uh, during the process of getting ready for the 200th anniversary. And, And there are some things in there that sort of make my hair stand up on end in terms of our approach to shepherding. At the same time, there were periods in our time where our church was very lax on its commitment to the Reformed faith. And so the system itself, I think it, what it does is it it's tamps down, it slows down these swings. But what God actually did was raise up people. God raised up a man like J.G. Voss in the early part of the 20th century who he used to bring the denomination back to a fully orbed, robust, reformed view of the scriptures. God raised up a man like Wayne Spear in the 1960s to to guide our denomination through this practice of political dissent, which had defined this denomination for its entire existence in the U.S. Reformed Presbyterians do not vote in elections and do not run for public office. That was the defining characteristic of the RP Church. And it's the reason, in God's providence, that our denomination exists as a separate denomination. God raised up a man in the 1960s and used him to guide us into a more biblically uh, formed application of that position. God raised up numerous missionaries, both men and women, who've taken the gospel to Japan and to Syria, to China, to Cyprus, later, more recently, to South Sudan, to Pakistan and India. So we can be very appreciative of the system of government, and I am very appreciative, but we can't put our faith in the system of government or in our history or in our theology or in our practices 
Our confidence must be in the Lord Jesus Christ and his ability to work through people to accomplish his purposes. So a system is only good as its practitioner. Secondly, the people in the system are only effective insofar as they're motivated by God's love. In a sense, it is our love that defines who we are. Reformed people love truth. They love being right. But being right and knowing the truth is meaningless if those things are not exercised in Christian love. And this is one of the real challenges, I think, facing our denomination right now, is is a desire to be right and to be precise at the expense of loving in the way Jesus calls us to love. I had the privilege of visiting the Longmont, Colorado congregation last Lord's Day and preached for that congregation. H.P. McCracken, who used to be in our Orlando church, has just recently gone to Longmont, and he's ministering there, so it was wonderful to catch up with him and to see what's going on. And while I was there, I had a chance to talk to the pastor who, who planted that church. He's now retired, and he told me that in their presbytery, when he would give the pastoral and evangelistic gifts exam, he would often ask a student, uh, which is more important, truth or love? That's sort of a trick question, right? Because we, uh, God doesn't actually make us choose. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that God wants us to appreciate equally. But he said what was remarkable was how many students said truth. That, that's, the, that, that's the impulse, is to give that as the answer. And our text here is making it very clear, without love, no amount of truth is going to do us any good. It's love that makes the truth effective. And so in verses 4 to 7, he lays out 15 attributes of love, both positive and negative. And certainly this is a description of how you and I should live, how everyone should live, how our elders should live and operate in our presbytery and synod meetings. And again, let's look at these. Love suffers long. Love is patient. Love is kind. This is our attitude when we interact with people. We're not in a rush to say our piece and get our point across. We're quick to listen, slow to speak, not harsh, but gentle in tone and attitude, even with those with whom we disagree. Verse 4 goes on to say, love does not envy. It does not parade itself. It does not boast about itself. It's not puffed up. It's not arrogant. And here again, we're showing a heart attitude of humility and contentment. We're not insecure and in seeking to build our other, ourselves up at the expense of others. We're seeking to display an attitude of meekness and charity. Not weakness, but meekness and charity and humility in our interactions. And especially at these meetings, that can be very difficult when people disagree strongly about important topics. Verse 5 tells us it doesn't behave rudely and it doesn't insist on its own or seek its own, insist on its own way. It's not easily provoked. That means it doesn't get angry or irritated. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
you recognize how hard it is to work with somebody who's easily provoked and irritable or somebody who always has to have their own way or somebody who always remembers that one time when you did something wrong and holds it against you. Very hard to work with people who are manifesting those kinds of attitudes. That's not what love does, though. Love doesn't do those things. Verse 6 tells us it doesn't rejoice in iniquity. So even if the person we're opposed to uh, stumbles, falls in some way, we don't rejoice in evil. We don't find joy in the troubles that come to others. We need to celebrate God's good wherever we find it, as it says, delight in the truth. And then verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love has staying power. It's not extinguished by one rough outing. It doesn't give up. It doesn't write people off as a lost cause. And then he finishes at verse, the first part of verse 8, love never fails. And certainly you and I need to look at those carefully and pray over these qualities and examine our lives for them. Because as we said when we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, we'll not be effective Christians without this kind of love. And, and it's certainly the case when the elders come together in these meetings that we will not be effective if we're not characterized by the kind of love that's described here. Now, some of you may not know that the elders of this congregation submitted a paper to our presbytery. And in this paper, we were asking our presbytery to communicate to the synod, the highest body of our denomination, our concerns about the way the synod's judicial commission is investigating the problems that have happened at the Emmanuel RP Church. And uh, we're just very concerned about the process. There's been no verdict rendered, and in the end, our presbytery felt like our request was premature, that they wanted to wait and see what the outcome was before we would send some communication. We felt like there are enough problems with the process that we'd rather not wait until the verdict, but to make our concern about the process known now. And so Friday night, when that paper, our paper was being discussed, the Lafayette Church was filled to the brim. Now this seems to be some debate. Someone had told me right before that that there were members of the press who've gotten a hold of this story there as well. And that may or may not be true, but it was a very intense atmosphere and one of your elders took the lead in defending our paper and did it in such a wise and gracious and loving way that we almost persuaded the presbytery to join us in what we were doing but we were able to have a debate in that extremely heated environment that truly honored God and I got a little text from one of the members of the Emmanuel Church who was there observing. And he said to me effectively, hey, you're really blessed with your session. 
Now, of course, these people gave Ken a standing ovation, so we know they love Ken. And he says, I've gotten to know Archer, and he's a gem. And after today, I really like what I see from that ship guy. McCollum isn't half bad either. <laughs> now, he didn't mention the other men, and he doesn't know the other men, so it's not a, it's not a knock on, on the other men at, at all. But if you know this guy, this is high praise. This is high praise from this guy. And I want you to know something, that our session is blessed. And that's all I, I said to him. You are right. I am blessed. Our congregation is blessed. Because God has raised up leadership in our church that loves God, loves Jesus Christ, loves the body of Christ in the way that Paul describes it here in verses four to seven. So much so that even relative strangers could see that in the way a paper that was, you know, dealing with a difficult issue, how the paper was presented to the rest of the presbytery. And so I do think we should give thanks to God for these men and their families but we need to also recognize that this is the call for us as well, each one of us in whatever sphere we are, is to magnify this love so that people could see that in our lives and could say, I don't know all the details there, but that guy or that gal is all right, is all right because they love in the way Jesus loved. So the system is only as effective as the people, and the people are only as effective as they love. And thirdly, we need to pray that God would help you love others just like Jesus loves you, because his love never fails. So even more encouraging about this passage is the fact that it's not really about your love for other people. It's about Jesus' love for you. And certainly, all of these characteristics about being patient and kind and not being boastful or irritable, all those things apply to Jesus. But they also describe the way Jesus loves his people. And I would encourage you to read these verses and think about them in that way. Jesus is patient with you. We are still fighting with the same sins we've been fighting for for years. And yet Jesus doesn't give up on you. He keeps loving you. He's kind. He's not irritable. He doesn't give up. He doesn't think evil. He continues to bear with you. He endures your failures. His love for you never fails. You and I will fail. Our love will fail. If this passage was about how, how great our love is, we would all be in big trouble. The reason Paul writes here that love never fails is because he's not talking about our love. 
He's talking about the love of God in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us God is love. And the reason love never fails is because God never fails. And the word in the original language that's translated fail is literally fall down. The same word is used in the, the Greek version of the, of the Old Testament in Psalm 37. Listen to these words from Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. You and I are going to fall at times, but it's the Lord's love that will uphold you by his hand and to keep you. And that's really what we need to think about. It's Christ's love that never fails. Jesus said in John 10, verses 27 to 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You see that? If you belong to Jesus, He's brought you to himself. He's opened your eyes so you can hear his voice and follow him. He keeps you. He gives you eternal life. And as he says here, you will never be lost. His love for you will never fail. His love transforms us, and it's in his love that we are able to love others. And that's my prayer, is that each one of us would know that love of Jesus and that we would be able to look at this passage and say, amen, this is the way Jesus loves me. This is the way Jesus loves me. And in his strength, this is the way I want to love other people. This is how Presbyterianism has any hope of working. Jesus' love manifested in his people leadership arising from the congregation, manifesting this love. And that's our prayer, that he would continue to help us grow in this great spirit of love. I think last year's Presbytery and Synod meetings were probably the most discouraging events in my 28 years as an elder in this denomination. And the meetings were full of sophistry and combative speeches and full-on attacks of other people. And, and I came back from Synod despairing over the future of this denomination. I have to be quite frank about that. But I am so grateful that I went back to this meeting we're, we're a long way from perfect. But God's grace was clearly evident. And, and we were much, much better at interacting with each other, at putting aside our own agendas and our pride, and of doing the business that God had given us to do. And, and what is more, what was really clear to me is that you could see men were trying 
They were trying to do better, like very consciously trying to do better. And I hope by God's grace, I was trying to do better. But I think for any of you who prayed for our meetings, that God heard those prayers. And again, there's tough things that we're still dealing with, no question about it. But my hope uh, was renewed in a sense as I saw the love of Jesus being on display in a way that it hadn't been the previous year. So as we get into this report in a few minutes, I want you to understand we have a good system. But the system is not in itself enough. What we need is the love of Jesus Christ working through his people. And by God's grace, we had a good measure of that in this last set of meetings. And our prayer is that we'll continue to see that manifested more and more in the future. Let's pray and we'll ask the Lord to teach us. Heavenly Father, we we do come to you thanking you that your love never fails. That is such an encouragement to us, Lord, because we know if it's, if it's up to us, uh, there's, there's going to be failure. We, we don't consistently do what we should be doing. Lord, how grateful we are for Jesus Christ. Jesus who left all that he had to come and live in our world and to suffer and die in our place. Jesus who rose from the dead and ascended up to heaven who rules over all things from your right hand, the one who continues to love us perfectly, to forgive us, to be patient with us, to endure with us. Lord, how we thank you that his love never fails and how we pray that, that his love would be more and more manifest in our lives and that we would be strengthened and given grace that we might love one another in ways that please you. We pray all of these things in our great Savior's name. Amen. Now let's uh, sing back to the Lord from Psalm 71, Selection A. The psalm speaks of trust in the Lord. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Ashamed, let me not be. And why can we call out to the Lord in confidence and in hope? It is because we know his love for us in Christ will never fail. Let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 71a.